0: And welcome to Pound the Rock, The Score's NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash.
1: Wolfond, I just want to follow up on something we talked about last week. I don't want you to worry. The Detroit Pistons, they have lost 15 games in a row. I, thought,
0: I think it's 16 in a row, Cash. Don't oversell the Pistons here, man.
1: You are absolutely correct, my man. But... What they did is they did cap an 0-15 November. I believe they became the eighth team in history to lose at least 15 games in a month without winning a game. But the reason I want to just kind of calm you down, we'll find, I don't want you to panic, is that because the Pistons showed, I guess, some fight in losing that 16th game in a row to the Knicks, mm. the night after they showed no fight in getting their doors blown off by the Lakers, Monty Williams said after they lost to the Knicks, that Cade Cunningham told the team in the post-game locker room, we got our swag back. So just in case you were wondering, Wolfon, or any of our listeners, whether the 2-17, 4 for their last, like, 46, 9-53 and 53 in the calendar year 2023, worst record than the process era 76s over the last five years, just in case you thought they didn't have their swag back, fear not, my friend. They got it back.
0: Well, this is why, you know, on the last episode, I played the part of Pistons Apologist, you know, in part for for the sake of having an interesting discussion and playing devil's advocate. And in part because I did feel like it wasn't quite as bad as the record made it look. So I'm glad to hear that they've got their (laughs) swag back, man. This is making (laughs) this is making me look great, Uh, man. That's tough. I, I also wanted to say just in terms of like revisiting that last episode really quickly, before we move on to some of the other stuff we want to talk about today. It's actually made me rethink one of my rankings in that episode. And I think if I were to do it again, I would definitely put the Rockets ahead of the Jazz. Because my reasoning for putting the Jazz ahead was like, okay, they may not have as much sort of present day talent. I don't like their young core quite as much as I like Houston's, but they have all of these first round draft picks coming their way in the future. And that just makes me feel more optimistic about their ability to like build this out in a way that Houston maybe won't. And I'm looking at the Pistons and thinking like, man, you can have all of these great draft assets and it's not a guarantee of anything. Yep. And I, we, we were having this chat. We were at the Raptors game the other night and sort of talking about all the, that Troy Weaver hate and, the vitriol directed toward the Pistons front office. And granted, I think in terms of like the moves they've made on the margins of the roster, what they've done with their cap space when they've had the opportunity to do certain things over the last couple of years, you know, the free agent decisions, the trade decisions, things like that. There have been some blunders without a doubt. But in terms of like their drafting record, like 29 other GMs would have taken Cade Cunningham first overall, right? Mm -hmm. I think Ivy is looking pretty damn good In year two, that doesn't look like a big whiff to me at number five. And again, that's a a draft decision that I think most other GMs would have made at that spot. Durin, I think, was a really nice snag at, what did they pick him, 13th? They they have accumulated all of these lottery picks that they have spent in a way that felt sensible at the time and in a couple cases feels very sensible now, but you just don't always know how these things are going to pan out. Even when you're talking about a guy who appeared to be a no-doubt slam-dunk number one overall pick in Cade Cunningham, who I still think is going to wind up being really good, but even in my Pistons apologism on our last episode, I'm like very much on the same page as you when I say, you can't just lay all of this at the feet of like the roster construction around him and the lack of spacing. The fact that he has not been nearly at the level, I don't think, that the Pistons or frankly, anybody else would have expected him to be at in year three is a huge part of the problem. So I think if we were doing that exercise again, I would say, yeah, the Jazz have all of these nice draft assets that they can potentially use, you know, whether it's in trades or on players that they hope can be part of the core. But when I'm looking at the Rockets and I see a guy in Alperin Shangoon who looks capable of being the best player on a really, really good team, I think that ultimately is the most important thing when we're assessing a team's future. And I like Lowry Markin in a lot, but I don't think he's quite at that level of player who can kind of be a real foundational superstar. I think he is more of a guy who you'd love to have being like a number two. Yeah. But I think having that dude is probably the most important thing. Like that's why we put the Spurs as high as we did, exactly. in spite of the fact that they're a complete mess right now. And I think that's, a huge part of the reason maybe the biggest part of the reason that things are looking so bleak in Detroit right now Cade doesn't look like that guy or at least he doesn't look as much like that guy as people thought he would at this stage
1: Yeah exactly and I don't want to rehash too much of it from last week but that's that's exactly what I was saying and that you know like you said there's a lot of people that want to put this all at the feet of Troy Weaver and the Pistons front office and blame the spacing around Cade and all the roster construction issues for like why Cade doesn't look like that guy. But I'm sorry, he's got to be able to lift their floor at least a little bit and give you some hope that he could be that guy. And I'm not saying he absolutely can't, but I'm saying his play over his now, whatever it is, 95 games in the NBA so far doesn't inspire that much confidence in me that like to the point where I'm like, okay, well, at the very least, yeah, they suck right now. But I'm convinced Cade's that guy. I'm not, and I'm I'm sorry. Like, you draft the guy first overall with what was expected of him. Again, I'm not expecting you know 100 games into his career for him to be the best player on a good team already. But I am expecting him to show me signs that I think he could get there relatively soon. I'm not there yet, not even close.
0: And then moving in the opposite direction is like since we did that the the magic the pistons haven't won a game the magic haven't lost a game since we did those rankings and that orlando team gets more impressive by the week i'm still not quite there in terms of believing that they're going to keep playing quite at this clip but you know if they finish the year with the number one defense in the nba i wouldn't be overly surprised and you know to your preseason bold prediction They are currently inside the top 20 in offensive rating, and I think over the last couple weeks or so, that's like borderline top five. Like, they have been scoring at a monster
1: rate over the last little while. And um, Yeah, well, to show you kind of how good they've been on the offensive end, at least for the last week, we convened seven days ago, and I believe they had the 21st ranked offense, and two or three games later, seven days later, they're up to 15th. So they've jumped six spots. Uh, in offensive efficiency over the last week. And look, again, I know I, you know, it was somewhat tug in cheek when I did the bold prediction about them having a top 20 offense. I mean, I genuinely thought they finally would, but they really don't have to be good offensive. Like, I think they're going to be a legitimately great defense all year. If they can even flirt with being a middle of the pack offense, this is like a solid playoff team. Going somewhere, and uh, it's been fun to watch, man. That crowd in Orlando, too. I don't know how many of like their home games you've watched recently on TV or League Pass or whatever, but like that crowd sounds hot. The attendance numbers are up. They had that play the other night where Suggs threw it to Cole yes. Anthony, and they recreated the Wade Lebron thing. That, it that is
0: the that's the moment of the season so yes, far. By yes. the way,
1: maybe not quite you know the magnitude of Wade to Lebron in Miami uh, about a decade ago or a little more than that, but like you said, moment of the season so far. Uh, the perfect image. And highlight to highlight what is one of the NBA's like most fun, best young teams. And uh, yeah, I'm enjoying watching it so far. And I really believe it can continue just based on the fact that I think the floor of a really, really good defense is there. And I think that offense is coming. And just quickly, while we're on the subject of those bold predictions and
0: checking in on how they're doing. It's a beautiful day to look at the Western Conference standings. And see that the top three all belong to the Northwest Division, Cash. I like it. We got the Wolves. We got the Nuggets. And we have those. I don't think it's fair anymore to call them like the plucky or the upstart OKC Thunder. They're just a juggernaut at this point. That team's absurd.
1: They're a juggernaut with an MVP caliber star at the top of it right now.
0: And I would like, you know, if we're talking about... You know, and I don't I don't love doing this because we're not even 20 games into the season. Like, there's no sense in looking ahead at this point. But I would say, you know, if we're talking about playoff viability, things like that, obviously Bradley Beal needs to get healthy, I think, for Phoenix to have a chance to make a deep run. But I'm not ready to, you know, move off of them as what I would view as the other likely Western Conference finalist. But it is totally plausible to me that one of Minnesota or OKC is going to be in the Western Conference Finals. Yep. Uh, That's where we're at with that. We do have the knockout stage set for the in-season tournament. We've got the Celtics at Pacers, Knicks at Bucks, Pelicans at Kings, Suns at Lakers. I think a pretty good field of teams should be some good games. You know, I've said a couple times, I think the most important thing in terms of Establishing legitimacy for this thing right off the bat would be having legit contenders be in this mix. Denver's not here, Philly's not here. But apart from that, I think we've got like, you know, ironclad, inner circle, and also fringy contenders in this mix. And I feel great about being on the right side of history because as soon as this thing was announced, I came out, I'm like, I'm pro in in season tournament. It was the minority opinion at the time, but I held firm and I feel great about how it's gone so far. And I know you agree, you wrote about that uh, this morning. So in writing that piece, what did you kind of discover both from talking to players and coaches about it, you know, collecting some quotes and sentiments from elsewhere and just, I guess, your own opinion about how, uh, how this thing has played out heading into this knockout round?
1: Look, I think for the most part, the NBA has to be thrilled. Like, if the whole point of this was to provide an early season jolt, mission accomplished. And as I wrote this morning, like, this Tuesday night, that eight-game group play finale night this past Tuesday had to have been everything the league office dreamt up when they cooked up this tournament, right? Like, you had the NBA world, fans, teams broadcasters calling the games, probably casual fans, watching a really gripping night of NBA ball and scoreboard watching and following along with tiebreaker permutations and trying to figure all that stuff out on a random Tuesday night in November. You know, the joke is that for the casual fan, the NBA doesn't start till Christmas because football dominates this time of year. Well, here the NBA was like genuinely dominating the discussion less than a week after Thanksgiving. That is a really good start for them. Uh, Some of the TV numbers came out yesterday. The NBA obviously proudly released them. Uh, National TV audiences up 26%. If you go by the group play games this season versus comparable viewing windows from last season, local TV broadcasts up 20% in November, the NBA just had its highest ever average attendance November. So A lot of good signs here. And I'll remind everyone, the only thing that's been played so far is the group stage. Like the highest profile and most lucrative games are still to come. So this is really, really good news for the NBA. I wouldn't say something I discovered because it is something I was already assuming would happen based on the fact there's money on the line and these guys have pride as pro athletes. But I guess I was encouraged to hear that And to see that it does seem like the players have for the most part bought in and want to compete like you could look around the league you had, um, you know, like one of the some skeptics thought for some of the more accomplished players or the wealthier players like how much is half a million dollars like really going to move them right the potential to win half a million if they win the tournament. Spencer Dinwiddie had a great quote, and I'm not saying he's one of the most accomplished stars. But look, the guy's making twenty million dollars a year. He had this yeah. great quote: "The thought of
0: getting another half million cryptocurrency is just tickling <laughs> Spencer <laughs> Dinwiddie right now." Cash.
1: Um, no, but he had this great quote where he was like, "Listen, who don't like money? Five hundred thousand dollars that can pay for my Rolls Royce." And it's like, uh, seriously, like you could be like, I don't care how jaded someone is, but even for the fabulously. Rich and famous, there's always more money can buy. Like they're not gonna thumb their nose at half a million dollars. Let's hear it for
0: capitalism, folks. Round of applause.
1: I'm just saying (laughs) But yeah, like Paulo Banchero kind of said something similar. You know, we're this is a young guy making almost $12 million a year, already pre-accomplished young basketball player, basically said like, look, there's money on the line. Like, I want to win. And as you know, because you're were, we were both at Suns Raptors this week, uh, You know, I asked Frank Vogel about it too, as someone who like actually coaches like some very accomplished superstars who are making tens of millions more than that, or in the case of KD, has already won multiple championships and finals MVPs and a league MVP. And I asked Frank Vogel, like, for guys that are that accomplished, like do you really see a difference between or sense a difference between average regular season game and NBA Cup game? And Frank Vogel like very plainly said, yes, like I, I sense a difference. Like these guys definitely want to win that cup. And and because it is something extra to play for and their competitors, they want to win it. They want to compete. They were checking the standings, seeing what they needed to do because they wanted to get to Vegas and have a chance to compete for this thing. So I think it. you add all that up and the league, should be very, very happy about how this has gone. Now, in saying that, obviously, it's the first one. It was never going to go off completely without a hitch. And the most obvious concern, the courts were an issue, right? And I'm not talking about aesthetically, because whether people liked them or yeah. you know thought they were too gaudy on inbecom- becoming of the NBA, that part was fine. The fact everyone was talking about it was great for yeah. the NBA. Let me just say, I, I
0: don't think the aesthetics... Of the courts were actually a big issue, except for the red ones. Yes, agreed. Like, that's one thing where I'm like, you could do everything the exact same next year, have the courts look just as flashy and just as colorful, just not red. Yes. Because those are the ones that made my eyes really hurt. to try. Like, I
1: couldn't get through an entire game on one of those red courts. I couldn't. Agreed. Agreed. But, like I was saying, the fact... Well, yeah, there's some things to iron out there. For the most part, the fact people were talking about the courts at all, that was another win for the league. The problem was some of these courts were slippery and genuinely putting player safety at risk. And you had players were complaining uh, after games in Toronto, New Orleans, Chicago, Orlando, You had Jalen Brown straight up come out and say after the game in Toronto where he slipped and appeared to have almost hurt his groin, you know, that this was unacceptable and that look, we all, the players are all down for this because it generates extra revenue and extra interest and viewership, but you also have to make sure the players are safe. And this was unacceptable tonight. And again, that came after players had complained of slippery courts elsewhere in Dallas. They never even got to use their in-season tournament court. They're the only team that didn't because of a paint defect the league just said it was a manufacturing issue. In Denver, I don't know if you remember, but they had to scramble to correct and repaint the three-point line between morning shoot-around and tip-off of their tournament opener because the three-point line was an incorrect. But but yeah, in the case of Denver and Dallas, it's like, okay, no harm there, obviously. Like, But in the those other courts, genuine hazard. Now, in Toronto, what they did between the first home game where Jalen Brown was complaining and Precious Achua's. was complaining and the second home game against Chicago where there were no issues is they sanded it down and they refinished it, putting a, a fresh coat on after sanding it down. And usually for, I mean, if anyone cares, usually the process when it comes to courts and NBA courts is it's sanded, it's painted, and then a coat of polyethylene is applied for grip. So when they say they recoated it, I'm assuming that's what they did, but yeah, sanded and refinished it in Toronto and there were no issues. And that same day, the Toronto stars, Doug Smith reported that that uh, he found out that, yeah, it seemed that there had been an issue with one of the uh, products used for finishing on some of the courts, but that it had been addressed, all was good. But then a few hours after that Doug Smith report, there were complaints in the Heat-Knicks game that the newly unveiled Madison Square Garden Court had a lot of issues. I think Heat reporter Ira Winderman said something along the lines of, like, someone told him it was like a... Uh, a a new racetrack without any grip on it or something like that, which is pretty scary when you've got very large professional athletes running and jumping as high and as fast as they do on this thing. All of which is to say, there's obviously genuine concern here. Zach Lowe, when he wrote about the courts, had said that I think 10 different companies were used for the sanding, the painting, the refinishing. So like some of the questions I have are all of the courts that had Issues when it comes to slippery surfaces tied to the same finishing company? Because if so, okay, maybe that's like an easy fix where it's like that company did something wrong or they won't be used anymore, whatever. But in the case that it's, you know, different companies all provided these slippery courts, it's like, well, okay, was it rushed through? Was painting entire courts in the end just not really a viable strategy and something they learned they can't do again because it's creating a safety hazard? And most importantly, given that there was an issue after Doug Smith reported that the issues had been addressed, is the NBA 100% confident that it has finally pinpointed what the issue was and addressed it ahead of these four quarterfinal matches in the four different markets and also ahead of the Vegas semis and final on what will be a new court? Now that I actually reached out to the league, haven't heard back from me yet on that. But so those are obviously big questions when it comes to the courts and player safety. Like if you want the players to continue to buy in, they need to feel as comfortable and safe and free as they would playing any other night.
0: That's all important information and things to consider. Um, I did want to ask you, because I know it's something you investigated, at least to a certain extent, the the sentiment around the point differential tiebreaker and how some people have reacted. To that, And often negatively, right? Because there are these unwritten rules about, you know, the integrity of the game, respecting the game, not running up the score and things like that. I've always been of the mind and I'm sure you'll agree with me. If you don't want the score to get run up on you, if you don't want the other team to keep scoring, then stop them from scoring. This is sports. That's how it works. I I don't necessarily mind when teams are just sort of dribbling it out in the spirit of sportsmanship. It's not like I have a problem with it. But I am also not going to get all huffy when teams are trying to like pad their stats or, or build a lead in garbage time. It's like, play until the final buzzer. And it's very rare that you hear those kinds of complaints from the team that won the game. It does happen where like a coach might come out and be like, throw like a young player under the bus and be like, yeah, he's got to learn that you don't do that. Things like that. But for the most part, it always just reads to me as like guys being sore losers. You know what I'm saying? So that, that has all come under the microscope as now there is a genuine reason to try to run up the score. And I want to know how you feel about that. Not just as an NBA fan, but I know you're a huge soccer fan and like goal differential is often used as a tiebreaker in soccer as well. Right. So it's not like this is a totally novel concept in sports. I guess to me, the big difference there is like in basketball, there are so many more opportunities to score. Is that like a big distinction for you? Like how much of a difference, I guess I'm wondering, do you feel like there's actually any legitimacy to these gripes or do you think everyone just needs to get over themselves?
1: the latter for sure they need to get over themselves like I'm all for taking the players feelings into account for most things but I'm sorry when all we're talking about is your feelings being hurt by the scoreboard when you're a professional athlete as part of a tournament that is generating extra revenue for your league which then in turn leads to more money for the players like I literally get over yourselves this is not something to cry over in the modern world And yeah, like I, I get what you're saying in that though it is used around the sports world, basketball is a little different because you can run up the score in a different way. Like it's the sport where the most points are put on the board in general, but still it's like tough shit, get over it, right? Like it is used in other sports and especially in soccer, but especially in short tournaments. And that's the thing here. Like, I don't know if people know this, I wrote this in the piece, but. Point differential is actually used as a tiebreaker in the regular season as well. It's just that it's the seventh tiebreaker. Right. And so it's rarely, actually, it's never needed to actually determine regular season standings and playoff seating, but it technically is in there. The difference is that you have an 82-game sample and you've got 29 opponents that you've played over the course of the season. So for example, like the sixth tiebreaker before you even get to point differential is record versus playoff teams in the other conference. Unfortunately, in a four-game group stage where you're only playing four different teams, you can't start using these different things like, well, uh, intra-conference record and then inter-conference record. Like, that stuff doesn't apply. And so after head-to-head, once it becomes a three-way tie or if you're breaking a tie with teams that are not in the same group, you have to use point differential right now. Now, one thing I would suggest, and and off air, you were telling me that actually Candace Parker floated this idea as well, which I didn't realize before I wrote it. But I think a good idea would be not to get rid of point differential altogether, but to drop it down a peg in terms of the tiebreaker rankings. And so you would still have head to head, obviously, if two teams are tied in the same group. But if three teams are tied in the same group, or if you're breaking ties between divisions for the wild card berths, use regular season records at that time to break the tie and the reason I really like this is you know part of this tournament and the buy-in was that look it's tied to the regular season right like the games still count towards the regular season standings well how about you also do that in reverse where teams have more incentive to chase early season wins and not sleepwalk through the first five weeks of the season even in non-cup games because hey you don't want to drop that random game in early November that's not a cup game when your regular season record might end up being a tiebreaker in the NBA cup. So if part of this whole deal is we want players to take the early season more seriously, we want fans to be more invested in it. I think that is a no brainer solution and it should solve. I think most of the point differential issues because obviously you could have teams that are also tied in regular season records, but I think for the most part that will break most of the ties and then the select few every couple of years or so that have to go to point differential deal with it deal yeah. with it DeMar DeRozan okay like and every other like Billy Donovan was upset because a few days after the Bulls were upset or DeMar DeRozan was was upset in Toronto because Pascal Siakam jacked a three pointer with the Raptors already up 12 in the final seconds and the bench was telling him to shoot now in DeRozan's defense the one thing I'll give him is The Raptors actually were already eliminated from the tournament before tip-off and did not know that. The coaches did not know that. The players did not know that. But the thing is, DeRozan wasn't upset that they were running the score up even though they were already eliminated. He was just upset in general because as he said post-game in the visiting locker room in Toronto, I don't care about (laughs) no in-season tournament points. And then Billy Donovan a few days later was upset because the Bulls, again, on the wrong end of things. The Celtics needed to up their point differential to hold off Orlando and Brooklyn in the race for East Group C supremacy. And so the best team in the league, the Celtics, had their starters on the court after the, you know, lowly Bulls had emptied their bench and the Celtics not only were running up the score, but then it started intentionally fouling Andre Drummond, a career 47.6% free throw shooter while they were up by 32. And Billy Donovan talked about not liking it. And, you know, like Drummond's a good vet and he was put on in a tough spot in a 32 point game. I mean, you know how you're put in a tough spot being an NBA player who shoots less than 48% from their career from the free throw line. I thought you
0: were going to say being on the Chicago Bulls. That
1: too. (laughs) That too. But like, sorry that I don't feel bad that a guy in the NBA who shoots less than 48% for his career from the free throw line got put on the spot. And this is where I'm saying I'm cool with the NBA exploring another way to to break ties. Like I said, I actually think the regular season record makes more sense, but I'm also not going to lose sleep over. And I don't think the NBA should lose sleep over professional athletes having their feelings hurt by the scoreboard and 48% career free throw shooters being put on the spot. And last thing I'll say, because I know we've already gone (laughs) through minutes before getting to the main theme of our pod today is shout out Devin Booker because Devin Booker in the visiting locker room after Raptor Suns was asked about the point differential thing and also shout out Orin Weisfeld one of our colleagues in the industry also friend of the show because I wasn't in the locker room at the time he actually alerted me to the fact Booker said this and I found the quote so thanks Orin. but Devin Booker essentially said He does. I I don't know why players and teams are upset about this point differential thing. I actually like it, and I actually wish it was like this all the time, where you could play to the end and not have it be seen as disrespectful. A friggin' men. Just as long as no mascots are distracting him while he's trying to shoot free throws. Fair point. (laughs) Or a a double team is being sent to him in Summer League. Um, Or actually, weren't the Suns upset about some late game shenanigans last year? Anyway, point is, I agree with you, Book. And if the NBA has its way, and if this first in-season tournament is any indication, teams and fans won't just be on the same page about playing to the end. They'll also be more invested in playing from the beginning. Nice.
0: It was uh, it was a game against the Pelicans last year. I don't know if, if Booker specifically was upset right. about this, but definitely Chris Paul was about Zion throwing down like a windmill dunk in garbage time of a loss against the Pels, so that's why I'm saying, man. It's like the Suns are going to the NBA Cup knockout stage, so it's probably easier for them to brush all this aside. And to Devin Booker's point, yeah, man, I would love to see a team running up the score in you know a non NBA a non NBA Cup game, and then if they get pressed about it afterwards, just be like, hey, man, this could be the seventh tiebreaker when it comes to <laughs> playoff seating. Like, you can never be too careful. Got to have all our I's dotted and T's crossed and whatnot. Um, I don't actually want that, but I wouldn't, you know, be upset about it either if somebody came out and said that. And I I love the idea of using regular season record as a first tiebreaker. Like, I I just think to your point about making the early part of the regular season that much more meaningful, I think that'd be great. But, you know, doing this for the first time, it was about figuring out what worked and what didn't. And that goes for the format, the tiebreakers, the courts, all of this. Some of it is probably going to stay the same. Some of it is going to change. But I think what I said at the time that it was announced and why I was behind it was that, why not, right? Why not try something, try to add some spice to the regular season? And if it leads to 5% more effort being given, 5% more fan engagement for a November regular season game... That's a win. And I think that that, you know, at least 5%. I think, you know, to your point about the viewership numbers being up, what do you say,
1: 25%? 26% for nationally televised games, 20% local broadcasts, And again, the highest ever uh, average attendance in the month of November. Yeah. So there you go. I think uh,
0: unambiguously, this is a big win for the NBA. And I think it's something that is going to stick probably with some tweaks on the margins. Um, before we go to break,
1: of those four matchups, is there one in particular that you're most looking forward to? Oof, um, I'd say probably Suns Lakers. I think that's the most heavyweight matchup of the opening or the quarterfinals. Good star appeal, cup. You know, a, a legit contender, and at worst, a fringe contender. Although we can talk about the Lakers uh, maybe a little later on this show. But yeah, I think I think for the quarterfinals, Suns Lakers is the obvious one. But Celtics Pacers too. I mean. The upstart Pacers, the up-tempo, Halliburton-led Pacers, coming into this thing with, you know, just have to win three games, single elimination? Why not them? Well, because they're playing games, uh, Because their well.
0: defense is as bad as their offense is good, and their offense is the best yeah. offense of all time. I think that's why. Yeah, uh, But their offense going up against the Celtics defense, I think, is going to be really fun. I just... Yeah. I think the Celtics are much better equipped to slow down the Pacers than vice versa. They've also so, beaten them by
1: like 51 already this season, didn't they?
0: Yeah, that was a game that Halliburton didn't play right, in, right. but I don't think Hallie being there would have prevented the Celtics from scoring a buck 50, Yeah, uh, which is what they did in that game. So yeah, yeah I think the, the Celtics are definitely heavy favorites in that one. I think Pelicans-Kings is actually the one I'm most excited about because the Pels have already gotten the Kings twice this season, and I just think that's, I don't know, it's kind of like an intriguing uh, matchup stylistically, and I'm, I'm pretty jazzed up to see that one. But uh, of all the positives that we've talked about with year one of the in-season tournament, the one that is just breaking my heart is that the Orlando Magic didn't make it to the <laughs> knockout stage. The team that we were all pinning our hopes on being that breakthrough team that won the inaugural NBA Cup, despite going 3-1 and one with a pretty impressive point differential in the
1: group stage. Should have beat up on the Bulls more. Should have hacked Drummond down the stretch. Uh,
0: Okay, let's take the break there and we'll come back and we'll talk about the most confusing teams in the NBA so far.
1: What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show.
0: Okay, Cash, as we tend to do, you know, we've, we've taken our time, we've meandered a bit, and Halfway through the episode, we're finally going to get to our intended topic of discussion, which is the teams that have confused us most so far this year. That can be confusion for any number of reasons based on schemes that don't make sense to us or just wildly oscillating results. It, just teams that have us scratching our heads for one reason
1: or another. I'll let you start, Cash. Who, who's been the most confusing team in the league? I'm going to start with the team that I picked to win the championship, and that's the Milwaukee Bucks. And the reason that I say they're confusing is, I mean, look, we talked about them a lot already to start the season. Obviously, that first week and a half, Adrian Griffin comes in, employs this new defense that doesn't really make a lot of sense, doesn't optimize Brooke Lopez at all. But within 10 days, after the players talk to him, they go back to the base drop coverage that is a lot more in line with uh, Brooke Lopez and even Giannis Antetokounmpo's strengths. And they start to pick it up on the defensive end. But overall, since they made that change on November 3rd, still just the middle of the pack defense, 14th. On the other end, though, I'd say Giannis and Dame have kind of started to hit their stride together, at least from a productivity standpoint, if not from an actual like on-court gelling perspective. But, though, you know, it's with regularity now that you're seeing like both those guys go for 30 in the same game. They've both pretty much been in the lineup most nights. Uh, as a team, they've been fairly healthy. And that all shows in their record. Like, they're tied with Denver um, for fourth overall. They're 13-6. and And yet, something doesn't feel quite right. And I think you'd agree because even though I know you weren't being completely serious when you sent those messages you have twice sent me text messages so far this season saying the Bucks are cooked now one of those times you sent me that message they were down 26 at home to the friggin Blazers they did come back to win that game but the fact they were down at all in that game was concerning and then last night they lost to the Levine-less <laughs> DeRozan-less Bulls so Wolfon what's going on here are they fine like I said 13 and 6 despite the weird defensive start and Giannis and Lillard still not really figuring it out but on the other end something doesn't seem right they've looked weird in some games they had that game in Toronto where they just got their asses kicked and maybe they were hungover maybe they weren't um you know a couple stinkers against Portland and Chicago the defense you know has been better since they went back to the traditional scheme but still not great am i missing something here or is this team confusing to you I wouldn't say they're confusing, and to your question about are they fine, I think
0: they will be fine, probably, but they're not that good right now. They've been one of the least impressive 13 and 16 right. that I think I've ever watched, and as to why it's not feeling quite right, it's like, just look at their last handful of games. They give up 129 to Washington. They win that game because they score 142, but still, they give up 129. They lose Uh, You know, this hotly anticipated game against the Celtics, which they made it close in the end. Uh, They wound up losing only by three, but like they trailed pretty much that entire game. Then they barely squeak out a win over the Wizards. They give up 128 in that game. As you mentioned, they get down 26 to the Blazers, who are not looking quite as bad, maybe as it seemed like they would be coming into the season. Their defense honestly is legit. Like the Blazers defense is actually good. But still, they had to come back from 26 down to squeak out a win over the Blazers. Then, last night, they lose to the short-handed Bulls. And it's just, I think the theme of it has been underwhelming performances. Like, they have played a fairly soft schedule, and they haven't looked very convincing in beating, really, any of these poor teams that they've played. And then, every so often, them just getting shellacked by you know, in some cases, not even particularly good teams, Shellacked by the Hawks, shellacked by the Raptors, shellacked by the Magic, which doesn't look quite as bad in hindsight, maybe, as it looked at the time. But so you're talking about like Dame and Giannis, how they're both starting to like, their level is is rising, but not necessarily in tandem. And I think for me, you know, I wrote a huge piece about this at the start of the season, why like the two-man game hasn't clicked. And part of me feels like maybe it doesn't matter Cause like to this point, actually like the Dame Brooke Lopez pick and roll has been great. And like way better than the Dame Giannis pick and roll. And the Middleton Giannis pick and roll has been great way better than the Dame Giannis pick and roll. And it's like, okay, if both of these guys can just be super efficient offensively by doing other stuff and not necessarily working in tandem, that doesn't mean they're not helping each other out. Like Dame spacing out is still helping Giannis, even if he's just working out of the post or in isolation or, running pick and roll on the other side of the floor with Middleton. Right. And same thing goes for like Giannis's interior gravity, helping Dame find openings on the perimeter. Like they're still helping each other out. If they're not doing it in tandem in the two man game that we thought could be so effective. I I don't think that's like the end of the world. I I guess I just think the offensive process on the whole has still looked a bit ragged a lot of times. And they're, they're pulling out all of these close wins, you know, basically until that game against the Bulls last night, it just felt like they were winning virtually every game that involved crunch time. And I just yeah, they have Dame. So maybe that feels more sustainable than it would for another team. But I just think their their offensive flow and the sort of actions that they run a lot of times have me scratching my head a little bit. Yeah, but but that's also nothing new for the Bucks like we thought Dame being there would fix it and maybe it will eventually it's all still very new so that's why I guess overall they don't feel like a confusing team to me just because a lot of this is stuff we've seen before and in terms of the defense taking a nosedive I don't think that was entirely unforeseen either given the personnel shake up uh, in the offseason and you know the the impact of losing not only Drew Holiday but also you know guys like Javon Carter, even Wes Matthews, right? Like you look at what they have at the point of attack now and it's just real flimsy. Yeah. And you couple that with Giannis not being at his customary level defensively and they're having a hard time stopping people, even though it's looked a lot better since they started putting uh, Brook in drop coverage more frequently. It's definitely something to monitor. Like I'm watching their games with a lot of curiosity about is this stuff steadily going to improve? And so far, in spite of their impressive record, I don't really feel like it has meaningfully improved. So it's not like maximum panic time, but I think there's definitely enough red flags here to start having some legitimate concerns about this team's championship viability. Yeah. All right, Cash. I think I'm finally ready to talk about the LA Clippers. I've put this off. I didn't want to go too in-depth after they made the Harden trade, after the first few games looked really rocky. I wanted to give it some time. But here's why the Clippers are super confusing to me. Kawhi and Paul George have both played all 18 games. Yep. Like, if you had told me that, coming into the year, okay, 18 games in, they're going to have James Harden, and Kawhi and PG would have played every single game, I would have felt like, man, they're going to be competing for one of the top seeds in the West. And instead, they're 8-10. and 10. And, you know, the thing that I said when they made that hardened trade was like, I'm not really worried about the offense at all. I think they're going to have to figure some things out defensively. And maybe it'll take some time for the offense to really gel. But I think ultimately it's going to be just fine. And instead, it's like the defense has actually looked really good. And the offense has been kind of a disaster. They're five and eight. Since that trade, and their offensive rating since then is 24th in the league, while their defensive rating is eighth. Their pace has fallen from 11th to 21st, um, and with Harden on court, it, it, their offensive rating is 110.3, which is basically equivalent to the 25th ranked Jazz. With Westbrook and Harden on the court together, their offensive rating is 101, and it like seemed actually for a minute like they were really finding their flow. And their tempo, they won four out of five games. Granted, two of those wins were against the Spurs, but like they also had two that were against the Rockets and Mavs. But then after that stretch, they lose to a Nuggets team without Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic, or Aaron Gordon. Get absolutely carved up by the Reggie Jackson, DeAndre Jordan two-man game while playing just some baffling pick-and-roll defense. Like, their tags were either non-existent or late routinely. You had Zubac kind of like playing in between, but not really knowing how high or how deep he should be playing in the drop. And then the help defenders behind him don't know what they're supposed to be doing. It was just like, I was astonished. I could not believe that a a, a serious team, which maybe the Clippers aren't, but like a serious team should not be getting carved up by the Reggie Jackson, DeAndre Jordan, two-man game in the year 2023 and the funny thing, just about just real that quickly like, though,
1: how much of a chef, like, how much were you chef kissing the fact that of all the teams for <laughs> Reggie Jackson and DeAndre Jordan to torch together in 2023, yeah. their old beloved Clippers were that team. I did, and it's
0: I, I had this thought also while watching Jalen Suggs demolish the Raptors in a game those two teams played, you know, a week or two back, and seeing how, you know, Suggs has like routinely had some of his best performances against the Raptors, a team that notably passed on him with the number four pick two years ago. My feeling has always just been, like, I I don't doubt that pro athletes are petty and hold these grievances and do whatever they can to fire themselves up. Like any added motivation they can find as these psychotically competitive people that like that trait has allowed them to get to where they are in life. But I've always sort of been like, Man, you're playing basketball at the highest possible level. You get to do this for a very short amount of time. All of these games are precious. I don't think these players need any added motivation, any other reason to go and play their absolute hardest every single night. And then I see stuff like that, and I'm like, maybe I'm wrong about that. You know, <laughs> like yep. Maybe these pro athletes are even pettier than I thought they were. And these revenge games are actually a real thing. I respect it. You can't not. So, you know, maybe whatever added motivation was there for Reggie and DeAndre in that game showed up. But a lot of that, and I give credit to them. Like, they played awesome. Especially Mm -hmm. Reggie was, like, absolutely incredible in that game. But the Clippers deserve a lot of blame, too, for for letting that one slip. And, like, the funny thing about that is, again, I I thought their pick and roll defense was terrible for most of that game but it was still kind of their offense that let them down at the end of the day. And I, I do think like, so you take that nuggets loss out of it. I I think it's looked better recently. Like the, the wins against the Spurs and the Mavs and the Rockets, I thought their offensive process started to look better. Even in the loss against the Pelicans that they had when they made a huge comeback and then kind of ran out of gas toward the end. I thought it started to look better. Then they had a great, wire-to-wire win over the Kings where everything clicked and Tyloo comes, you know, into the press conference afterwards and is like, that's what it's supposed to look like. Their tempo was way better. The ball was moving. They were, like, initiating more stuff out of the post with Kawhi and PG and getting good stuff out of that. Uh, Harden had, I think, by far his best game as a Clipper. That was probably Kawhi's best performance of the season where, you know, he really wasn't settling for jumpers. That was the first game where I I saw his, like, hyper-determined driving game come into the picture where he's just like, get out of my way. I'm getting to the rim. There's nothing you can do to stop me. All of that looked way better. And then the big thing with that game too was that they only had four turnovers the entire game. And coming into that game, something that I'd been tracking. So since the Harden trade, first of all, the Clippers are tops in ISO frequency in the league, which is maybe not surprising. Yeah. Fewest passes per game by far throwing 13 fewer passes per game than any other team, but still coming into that game against the Kings, they were 20th in turnover rate where it's like one of the big benefits of playing ISO ball is supposed to be ball security. You're not passing the ball. It's hard to turn it over. And yet they were still bordering on bottom 10 in turnover rate uh, until again, that game against the Kings where they had four turnovers the entire game. So there are so many things here that have me kind of scratching my head and wondering, is this stuff going to get sorted out or is this team just completely sunk? And I think that, you know, probably the biggest piece of that equation is just Kawhi and what level he ultimately gets up to, but I'll throw it to you and kind of get your thoughts about how this has gone since they acquired Harden.
1: Yeah. Well, I'd say your last statement there kind of took the words right out of my mouth because, Even as you were talking, and I get, you know, everything you're saying, and I still kept coming back to how much of this is just, even before the Harden trade, how much of this is just Kawhi Leonard hasn't quite looked like Kawhi Leonard. Now, he did in that game against Sacramento. He was incredible on both ends. I think he he was like 14 of 18 from the field, looked more like his old self on the defensive end. I do want
0: to say, sorry to interrupt you, but I think he's looked, for basically the entire season, really good defensively. Yes. It's been on offense where I feel like he hasn't looked like the Kawhi of old.
1: Yeah. And, you know, maybe putting Harden in there hasn't helped. I don't know. Like, one of my concerns with Harden, I know I I was far from the only one who had this concern, was that, yeah, like, I get that he is a great playmaker who led the league in assists last year, but the way he gets into the offense, you mentioned how slow they are now. Like, I just thought it was going to be a detriment to a Kawhi, to a PG, because he was soaking up more of the ball and it was taking the ball out of their hands. And even you say, yeah, but he's going to get it to them eventually. He's going to get it in the right spots. I still, at this stage of their respective careers, probably would rather have the ball in Kawhi Leonard's hands more often than James Harden. Even Paul George, like Paul George has been great, especially before the Harden trade. But so yeah. so
0: Harden has been like very deferential though. He has. He has. Like his usage rate is 18% right now. Which is astonishing for him. Yeah. Um,
1: But I don't know. Like, it just... Kawhi hasn't looked right. Didn't look right before the trade. Definitely hasn't looked right since the trade. He had that one great game against Sacramento. But uh, for me, that's the majority of the issue here. Is that, like, if Kawhi Leonard looks like Kawhi Leonard, I think a lot of this is addressed internally just because they have an absolute world beater. In terms of some of the other stuff, like... How often did we talk, even when they first got Westbrook last year, and even for as, you know, against that as we pretty much were, the two of us, lots of other people talked about how if there's one thing Westbrook could do, it was, like, speed them up a little bit, get them running in transition when the opportunities presented themselves, and just, like, add a bit of a different wrinkle to this offense. And he was doing a good job of that last year. He was doing a great job of that start of the year. I don't have to rehash everything I said about Russ earlier this year. Like, that seems to have gone away since Harden went, I think you mentioned they're 20th in pace and uh, I don't remember what you said about since Harden got there, but they're obviously even further slowed down since they got Harden. They don't seem to be picking those spots like when they have the opportunity to get out and run with Harden in there instead of Russ. And I don't know, like all these things are adding up. They just, am I wrong in saying it almost like feels like a grind watching this team?
0: (laughs) No, I don't think you're wrong. And I think, again, I, I, I feel like that it's been less so lately. Yeah. But definitely early on, it was like very station to station, very kind of methodical. And then just these guys, especially Harden and Kawhi, who are like so reluctant to shoot catch and shoot threes that even when they get a bit of zippiness with the ball movement in the half court, it stalls out because the guy that the ball comes to isn't willing to shoot right away off of the catch. In that Kings game, Harden had, I think, two or three like quick no hesitation catch and shoot threes, which is maybe cause for optimism. But the other part of this is like, you know, Terrence Mann, such a stink was made about keeping him out of a Harden trade or keeping him out of, you know, like a Fred Van Vliet trade before that. The Clippers obviously love him. He moves into the starting lineup when Russ volunteers to go to the bench. And look, I I recognize that he contributes in ways that don't show up in the box score. He's a solid perimeter defender, uh, you know, a decent connective passer, brings a lot of energy, good rebounder for his size, but he's shooting 17% from deep, and he, more than anyone, is record-scratching out of so many open looks in a way that really cripples the offense. So I still think it made sense to put him in the starting lineup in place of Russ just because he is a slightly better defender, even though I think Russ has been pretty good at that end this year. And more importantly, like he doesn't need the ball in his hands. he's not going to take touches away from those other three guys. But if part of the idea was to improve the spacing of the starting lineup, that's not really happening at all. So you have that kind of issue with the starting lineup where they're actually not able to create a ton of space. And even when they are creating like open three-point looks, a lot of times guys aren't taking them. And then you go to their transitional groups and it's like, man, one thing they just can't do anymore. Like they did this against the Pelicans and it lost them the game. Playing Russ, PJ Tucker and Zubach all together. Like those lineups just cannot score at all. And maybe that was an exception just because they needed Tucker to guard Zion in that game and they won't have to play him as often, but P.J. Tucker right now has a 4.3% usage rate, yeah. which would be the second lowest of all time for any player playing at least 10 minutes a game. And I, st- I like Zubac. I think he's been pretty good, especially the last couple of games. Like that game against the Kings, he was amazing defensively. Like erased Sabonis from that game. And I also thought Tice was a nice pickup for them, who until their game against the Warriors last night had looked pretty good. The times when I feel like they've tried to downsize haven't really worked out all that well for them. So I don't hate the idea of them, you know, having a true center on the floor pretty much for all 48 minutes, but like those transitional groups with Russ and like a proper center on the floor, just have a really hard time scoring and finding that offense, defense balance, I feel like has been a challenge for them.
1: Yeah. And it all goes back to, I mean, we talked about this at the time, but like over protecting Terrence Mann in trade talks absolutely boggles my mind. He's 27 years old. He's not a prospect. He's a solid player. Like He's a good player. I like Terrence Mann, but he's a solid starter or solid like early bench piece. Like uh, I don't know, man. Imagine how good this team would be with Fred Van Lee. Um, my only other question is, you mentioned P.J. Tucker with a 4% usage would be the second lowest ever for a guy who's played 10-plus minutes. Who had the lowest ever? Reggie Evans? Uh, somebody named Charles Jones who yep. played for
0: the Washington bullets in like the nineties. Oh, I, I looked it up a couple of days ago, but here, let me pull it up for you quickly. Yeah. Charles Jones, 4.2% <laughs> in 92, 93 for Washington. All right. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. I, I still have like some measure of faith that it's going to improve. I don't know how much it's going to improve, but I, I do think they're better than what they've shown so far. And to the Kawhi point specifically, he he didn't look like Kawhi for like the first half of last season either. And maybe that's different because A, he was coming off an 18-month layoff. And B, now he has like another knee surgery in the rear view. So maybe you're less inclined to trust that he's going to round back into form this time around. But I just think he's earned that benefit of the doubt. You know, fair. Until we see otherwise... To expect that by the end of the season, he's going to look like something close to Pete Kawhi again. And again, I think he's been excellent defensively. None of this means that the warning signs aren't real or aren't troubling. But I'm I'm not overly concerned about that yet. And also, like, the Clippers have been awesome when he's been on the floor. And more than awesome when he and PG have been out there together. So... You know, I'll I'll take the silver linings where, yeah, the defense has actually looked better than I expected it to. And um, the offense is starting to look better from a process perspective.
1: All right. I had this team a little further down, but since we talked Clippers, let's get to them quickly. The Lakers, Mm. 23rd on offense, 15th on defense, 22nd in point differential. No Vanderbilt yet this year. Gabe Vincent has only played four games. Rui Hachimura has missed eight, I believe. They've had the 10th hardest schedule, according to ESPN Strength to Schedule rankings. And they're (laughs) 11-9. They have more than survived this. They've actually got a winning record despite all of that. Now, part of it is perhaps you could say, well, LeBron and AD have only missed one game each, so they've stayed relatively healthy. But, like, these numbers don't add up. Wolf on how are they doing this? And are those underlying metrics on both ends of the court cause for concern going forward or do you see it from a glass half full perspective where they've managed to survive this first quarter of the season with a winning record despite having a brutal offense a middle of the pack defense some injuries pretty significant injuries and once they get these guys back and LeBron and AD are rolling like they're going to be fine or do you see it the other way like no that's there are some underlying issues here that they will not be able to overcome over the course of a long season. More toward
0: the latter, like underlying issues. I think they're pretty mid. And maybe their defense can be a little bit better than it's been. You know, like, can they get up into like top eight, even top five territory? Like, that's what they're going to have to rely on because as much as I think their offense can be better than it's been, I don't like this is a a below average offensive team. The biggest thing to me is they're 27th in three point attempt rate and 29th in three-point percentage. Like, they're just not a good shooting team. That's an issue that's plagued them for the last couple of years. And, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we talked about their offense early in the season when we were talking about big disappointments, and I just think it has been a little bit too predictable at times, a little bit too static, too much on LeBron's shoulders, frankly. We also talked about Reeves moving to the bench and why I thought that made sense. And I do think in terms of, like, his production... And just overall, like having things make a little bit more sense, like splitting up him and D'Angelo Russell because there was some duplication there in terms of ball handling responsibilities. Also, those lineups with him and Russell out there together were getting shredded defensively. And with Reddish in the starting group, that's looked a lot more solid. And it's been easier for Reeves to sort of find his offensive role running bench and transitional groups. So like, all that makes sense to me. I just with the shooting in the state that it's in, I, I just don't know how good their offense can actually be. And then it's also like, even for like a team that, that plays big a lot of the time, they're like one of the worst offensive rebounding teams in the league. You know what I mean? It's like, they're not really getting the benefit of their size. So yeah, I don't know. It just doesn't, it hasn't looked great to me and it doesn't look like something that's about to turn around. You know what I mean? Even like comparing them to the Clippers, I can see the Clippers sort of turning a corner where I'm like, I wouldn't be surprised if for the rest of the season, the Clippers were a top 10 offense. It would shock me if the Lakers were a top 10 offense the rest of the year.
1: Yeah, and the guy who's been missing, who will juice their defense the most in Jared Vanderbilt isn't addressing their offensive issues. If anything might exacerbate them. This might be an impossible question to answer in hindsight, but before we move on, I, I am genuinely curious though. If someone had told you coming into the year, first 20 games, Lakers are going to be middle of the pack on defense, bottom 10 on offense. Austin Reeves is going to be a shell of what we thought he'd be coming into the year. Vanderbilt won't have played a game. Vincent will have only played four. What would you have ex- said, okay, then their record will be? Because it sure as hell wouldn't have been 11-9. <laughs>
0: Well, I guess, but then you're also telling me that AD and LeBron have played all but one game, right? Yeah. So yeah. that is still the most important thing. Yeah. And I would say, yeah, if they're, if they're playing pretty much every game, then 11 and nine feels kind of reasonable. And that's, you're weighing those two things against each other, right? Where you're like, okay, so some guys are going to get healthy. Maybe some guys are going to start playing a little bit better. But can you expect that level of health from right. LeBron and AD moving forward? I don't know. And that's why I'm like, they probably net out to being about this, maybe like a slightly above 500 team. They don't look like a legitimate contender to me yeah, right now. Agreed. What have you thought about the New Orleans Pelicans so far, Cash?
1: Yeah, a lot of overlap here, as usual, uh, between us. I'll tell you how I felt about them. I've been confused by them. <laughs> well, listen. <laughs> me, I too, think, me too, me too. <laughs> I think, for the most part, they've been solid and should, you know, at 10 and 9, should be mostly happy with how their season is gone, but confusion is the right word to describe my feelings about them because this is something like I was actually laughing at myself because I think it was last Friday night I tweeted about how you know the Pelicans had this stretch they could really build off of and it was over an 11-day stretch they beat the Mavs the Nuggets the Kings twice and the Clippers with their only loss during that time being a one-point loss to your West leading Minnesota Timberwolves and so what I tweeted was essentially, look, CJ McCollum hasn't played in three weeks. They've had this really nice stretch here. They beat good teams. They competed against the Wolves. I know this team has been streaky in the past and doesn't deserve like the benefit of the doubt, but I really think this stretch is something to build off. of. And then they proceeded to lose two straight games, not just to the Utah Jazz, but to the lowry Marketing List Utah Jazz. And so all of my faith, was just thrown on the ground and stomped on by someone the size of Zion Williamson. (laughs) Not great, Bob. But yeah, I mean, still, they are over 500. They did just get CJ McCollum back. I don't know how to feel about their overall uh, win-loss record, but then there's, like, other parts of it, too. Okay, so they have a top-10 defense. Their offense has slid to 18th. You know, like, this is a team whose offensive upside we've been high on for a while. Even as a non-shooting team, we've talked about their ability to dominate the inside. And then even if you look at this year, it's like Ingram and Zion have only missed a few games each. They're basically both averaging like an efficient 24 points and five assists. The team gets to the free throw line. Like I said, they just got CJ McCollum back. I don't know. Like, is them still being a not great offensive team just come down to, well, they lost McCollum for three weeks and they just don't shoot enough. What's going on here? Because in terms of that interior domination, getting to the line, like that stuff has been there. Zion and Ingram have been good. And... Yet the offense still lagging behind.
0: Yeah. So the shooting is obviously a problem. Yeah. Not only McCollum missing time, but like they haven't had Trey Murphy yeah, all season. Fair point. And he appears to be on the brink of returning. So that is going to be a huge difference maker for them. What I wonder is okay, the offense theoretically improves. McCollum comes back, Trey Murphy comes back. Those guys take the minutes of guys who can't really shoot. But Why do the Pelicans have a top 10 defense right now, right? It's because of guys like Herb Jones and Dyson Daniels who are crippling their spacing. So that's the balance that they have to strike. And there was a point in time, like really a couple years ago, Zion had like pretty much a, a healthy season where he was just absolutely dominant offensively, where it kind of looked like even if you don't surround him with shooters... He's going to find his way to the rim and he is going to drive efficient offense because he is just an unstoppable force. He will get where he wants to go. You can throw multiple bodies at him and he's still going to get where he wants to go or he's going to draw so much attention that even lacking shooting isn't going to prevent them from getting quality shots at the rim because you're just going to be in rotation all the time. And he's looked a lot better recently, but he hasn't quite looked like peak Zion yet. And it's sort of the same thing with Kawhi where it's like, he could get back up to this level, and that could change everything. But if he doesn't, I don't know how far this team can go. So I think their offense will definitely improve. Like Trey Murphy, you can't overstate how important yeah. he is going to be to that. And then also, it's like you know, he he's not like an ace defender by any means, but he's a guy who's six foot ten, who can move his feet pretty well. Like he's not going to hamstring your defense either. So you can maybe get the bo- the best of both worlds there. And I'll be sad to see Dyson Daniels moved out of the starting yeah. lineup because I just love watching him defend. Like, he is so active, so long, has amazing hands. Like, him and Herb Jones is just...
1: Dude, Herb Jones,
0: like... like he's I mean, unbelievable. Like, yeah, one of I, the top five defenders in basketball. So I was going to say,
1: year. Herb Jones, I know we're, like, talking, you know, before a quarter season mark here, but uh, Herb Jones should be on an all-defensive team if the season ended after 15 to 20 games for some reason. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, there's a bunch of things
0: going on. Like one is especially, you know, without McCollum and Trey Murphy for this stretch is just they have this same three-point math problem that it feels like they've always had, which is not just that they don't take enough of them, but they give up a ton. And I think part of that is by design. Like they're not a good rim protecting team, so they really do pack the paint and they're fine giving up all these threes. And so when you look at them having a top 10 defense, A big part of that is they're giving up a ton of threes and they have the second lowest opponent three point percentage in the league. So you can maybe say they're getting a bit lucky on that front and we could really start to see their defense get pulled down. Not only when, you know, guys like Dyson Daniels aren't playing as often, but when maybe their opponents start to shoot threes a little bit better. The question to me is like, is their offense going to rise enough to offset that to the point that they can be more than a slightly above 500 team as they are now? I do, in terms of that three-point math problem, though, like, okay, so McCollum coming back, Trey Murphy coming back, gonna solve that. Jordan Hawkins, their rookie sort of sharpshooter who just moves around like a Energizer bunny off ball and can shoot off of all different kinds of movement. Again, you have to deal with the offense-defense balance there because defensively he's a long way away. But, man, you want to, like, goose your three-point volume? That dude gets them up. Yep. And uh, Matt Ryan has also, he's, he's injured right now, but he's helped on that front too. So like they have these pieces, I think that will allow them to kind of mix and match and hopefully do what they need to be able to do to like find a solid level at both ends of the court. But I think it's going to be a bit of a tricky juggling act. And I think the bigger picture thing for me, if I'm talking like, how do I feel about this team or confusion about this team is like, man, I think I just might be out on Ingram as like a tent piece for this team or any other team, just because, you know, even though the, the Pell's numbers with like him and Zion on the court together are pretty solid. I think they're like plus 6.5 per hundred possessions, something like that, which is good. Not great. If you're talking about like your top two players, his offensive decision-making just leaves me frustrated yeah. too often. His shot diet, his playmaking decisions or non-decisions, like the reads that he misses or just chooses not to make in service of taking yet another semi-contested pull-up 19-footer, it just drives me up the wall. And I just don't think that him and Zion really complement each other all that well. That's that's just like my one sort of big picture nagging concern where I'm like, I don't know if Ingram is the guy, but then it's like, okay, if you're then saying we need to get pieces that that fit around Zion better. Does that make sense given how injury prone he is exactly. and how, you know, uncertain and unreliable his availability has been and is probably going to continue to be. Like it's it's a really challenging situation. That's why like I wrote this whole piece last year when Zion got injured again just being like this team is perpetually in limbo. Yeah. How do you decide as the Pelicans front office how to proceed? How to continue building this team if you just have this level of uncertainty about whether your best player is even going to be available.
1: Yeah, I think they're in long-term limbo, and I think in the short term, they're very mid. Like, I think the offense is going to get better, the defense is going to get dragged down. I think they probably net out to about a middle-of-the-pack team and a very 500-ish team, and they're, you know, probably in the play-in, but... I don't think this team's ceiling. At least watching them so far this season, and I realize, yeah, they're, they got CJ back. They're going to get Trey Murphy back, but I just don't think their ceiling is as high as I thought it could be. Like, it's not that I was super high on them, but if someone asked me, okay, the Pelicans' ceiling coming into the air, I'd be like, look, if things break right, if Zion's healthy, if we're talking ceiling, they could make a run in the West. I just, I, I don't actually believe that anymore. You know, and maybe you can say it's silly that I, you know, I went from point A to point B in the span of 15 to 20 games. But I don't know. Sometimes I think you can kind of see whether a team has it or not. And I don't think the Pelicans do. I think they're going to settle, you know, around where they are. Very middle of the pack, 500 team. All right. <clears throat> Last team I have here, the Cleveland Cavaliers.
0: Yeah. Why aren't they better? <laughs> I, like, I, I, maybe this is my fault because I came into the year with like, super high expectations about the kind of regular season I thought they could have. But even in watching them, and I know part of it is that like their their core group hasn't been all the way healthy. I think they've played nine
1: games together, like their full starting yeah, so lineup. Mitchell, Garland, and Allen have all missed five games each. Okoro missed nine. Levert's missed a few. So that's part of it. But
0: even watching them kind of at full strength, it's just... This is what I talk about like that oscillation that has me scratching my head where sometimes it looks so good, so fluid and harmonious and the ball is popping and guys are cutting, they run these really nice actions I think to engage weak side defenders and clear out the middle of the floor for their central actions and you know to that to that end I think Strucse has been a perfect offensive fit, you know like exactly what they needed, but then they're 24th in offense, you know? And like, even with their starting five on the floor, that offensive rating is like 112, which is more or less in line with where they're at overall. So I, you could say maybe it's just that Mitchell and Garland have both been like sub 34% from deep. And as a result, the team as a whole is 27th in three point percentage, but it feels like it goes a little bit deeper than that. So I'm wondering where you're at with the Cavs so far.
1: Yeah, I'm down on them. Like and and like you, I'm confused and like you had them on this list. I mean, the defense has also fallen off a bit. Overall, yeah. B- they have a- better
0: lately though. Like since Allen came back, yes. it's been really good and 100%. they're up to 8th overall. So yeah, I'm not worried eight. about the defense.
1: They're up to 8th overall. On the whole, the offense dragging the down has them with a negative point differential, a negative net rating. I I don't know what to feel about them because on one hand, I've got the same concerns as you. On the other hand, You know, they have a winning record despite those early injuries. They have won six of their last nine with recent wins coming over Philly and Denver. But then it's like, then they also put up these stinkers, which finally culminated in one of the worst losses of the season where they lost a home game to the Trailblazers in a game they were favored by 12 and a half. All of which leads to a bunch of confusion, especially because we both, and I know you were a little higher on them than I was, but still, we both came in thinking that they could threaten for the top seed in the East and at the very least, like break up the top two of Milwaukee and Boston, like a legit chance to be a top two seed in the East. Obviously it's still early and it can't rule it out this early in the season, but they definitely have not looked the part and I don't know why. So, I mean, I guess the one positive is when they you mentioned like even when their starters are on the court, the offense, not really improving even with Struess in there with them. But, they are like that lineup is an overall plus six per 100 possessions yeah,
0: um, because so, of the defense.
1: Yes. Though. So I guess the fact that they've still been really good overall when their best players have been on the court is something to be encouraged about. But the discouraging part of it is like Struce coming and the way he compliments this team, it was supposed to uplift the offense and their offense. Maybe not fully catching up to their defense, but starting to catch up to their defense was supposed to be why we were higher on the Cavs this year. And the fact that that hasn't borne out to me is what concerns me. Because it's like we knew the defense was good. We needed to see the offense get better to really trust them to take another step in the postseason. And, yeah, hasn't been the case. Yeah, they were
0: 7th in offensive rating last year. Really? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that's why it's like now they're 24th, despite Struz coming in and doing basically exactly what they wanted him to do. And I, I just, I'll go on like a quick little tangent just about the Struz fit and why it should be helping them more than it is. It's just a great, it's a great lens through which to look at like the way that we talk about three point shooting and three point gravity and, and a good illustration of the folly of just looking at three point percentage because right now, Max Strus is shooting 37.8% from three. And Isaac Okoro is shooting 38.9% from three. <laughs> yeah. Tell us the difference. But I think, well, you know, watching the game, it's very easy to tell the difference. Isaac Okoro is a stationary offensive player. He's standing in the corner. The threes that he's getting are standstill threes where he's not being guarded. Max Strus is zipping around being run through all of these off ball sets slingshotting into pin downs and dribble handoffs coming off of exit screens, the the versatility of his shooting a allows him to have like way, way more three point volume than a has a shooting like two, a game Struis is at like seven and a half and B forces defenses to account for Max Struis wherever he goes. And when I talk about the clever stuff that they do, just sort of a way to use both sides of the floor and engage other defenders, that's what I'm talking about. Like, they can do that with Struz in a way that they obviously can't with Okoro. And so that's like the the big thing for me is like when Struz hits the bench, you really feel it. Like their offense looks completely different and that's borne out by the numbers. They're like 10 points per hundred possessions worse offensively when he's not out there. And it just sort of goes to... You know, th- this point that I made early in the season when I was talking about this game they played against the Thunder, where they were getting absolutely cooked by Shea Gilgis Alexander, which, you know, no real shame in that. Everyone's getting cooked yeah. by Shea this year, but like they had to resort to putting Mobley on Shea down the stretch because Okoro wasn't playing that game, but even if Okoro was, they wouldn't have been able to score with him on the floor. <laughs> and th- there are other options in terms of defending top perimeter players, top wings, especially are just, I actually don't mind Struz defensively, especially as a team defender. I think he's usually in the right spots. He rotates well and he plays hard, but like Struz, Levert, you know, using one of the guards like Mitchell to, to, it's just like not a good option. That's why you see even somebody like Shaden Sharp, absolutely going off on them last game. Like they just haven't solved that particular issue. So I don't know. That's I still expect that they should have at this point been better offensively and should be better offensively moving forward. But yeah, I don't know. It's weird. Like I, I feel like the Garland Mitchell thing hasn't been as synergistic as it was last year. I don't know if you feel this, but like I thought it was like looked like a great fit where they were interacting together and it was actually like cooperative and not a sort of my turn, your yeah. turn, tug of war last year. And this year I feel like they've lost some of that. And Garland got off to like a really weird offensive start where he was turning the ball over a ton. And then the other thing is like Mobley, who continues to be like a life-changing defender. But offensively, it's especially glaring to me on the short roll, where I don't think there has been much, if any, growth in terms of what he's able to do as a short roll passer or like overall short roll decision maker. I actually think like Allen is better at making those short roll decisions than Mobley is, which is both, I guess, a credit to Allen and a, a concerning <laughs> point for for Mobley. And maybe part of that is just like Mobley is better at doing. Like they put him in the corner and he makes the corner cut when Allen has the four on three. That's like the majority of the passes that Allen's making in those scenarios. Maybe maybe Mobley is just better at that than Allen is. But I don't know the fact that that Mobley is like lagging behind a guy who's seen as like not a particularly skilled center in that regard is kind
1: of concerning to me. Yeah. And for me, like even just watching what's concerning is that, and I don't know if you feel this too, but like it's still, sl- it still looks kind of awkward and rigid on the offensive end with Mobley. And I don't know, maybe that's just like, I don't know, I don't know. Maybe that's just like uh, the way he's built or something. And it's, it'll always look like that, even mm-hmm. if he becomes more effective, but it always does leave me thinking like there hasn't been a lot of progression on the offensive end when I watch him because it doesn't seem any more fluid than it did a couple years ago. And to your point about Garland and Mitchell, no, I'm on the same page as when like as you started asking me that question about whether I've noticed it too with them. The exact thing I was gonna say is that it seems a lot more your turn, my turn this year than it did last year.
0: Yeah, and it's just they'll go from one possession just having a great set that they run with pace and purpose with a ton of motion and off ball activity. And then like the next one, they're meandering into an action with like 10 on the shot clock with no urgency. And they sleepwalk through the action itself with like, you know, screens not hitting or guys strolling around screens instead of sprinting and they're not creating any advantages. And that, that all just has me confused as to what, what is happening here and why it's so much worse this year in spite of the fact that I feel like they got a piece that should have helped it look better. I guess if we're looking at silver linings, the defensive floor is still so high that ultimately just like a little bit of offensive improvement to me is still going to lead to them being like a 50 win team, but definitely some concerning signs for them so far.
1: Yep. 100%.
0: Okay. Cash, uh, we're we're coming up to the 90 minute mark here. So, (laughs) Do, do you
1: have anything left for us before we get out of here? I had one team, but honestly, I don't really think we need to get into it that much because we've already uh, discussed them last week when we talked about the rebuilding rankings. If I'm being honest, I do have to say the Spurs have confused me somewhat to start the year. One, I thought they would be at least a little more competitive than this. The, those points, Sohan, minutes... Confused me a little, even though I get it. They're playing a the long-term game. This season's about experimentation, as we discussed last week. You talked about them not really having a traditional lead guard out there with Wemby enough. Again, all stuff we discussed last week, so I don't think we have to rehash it. But if you're asking me, honestly, for teams that have confused me the most to start the year, the Spurs have to be one of them. And then, yeah, I mean, they're 3-15, and 15, only team bottom five on both ends, and they have the worst net rating of any team at minus 12 per 100 possessions. Again, them being bad, not confusing. Them being this bad and the way they've gone about it, and maybe some of the decisions Greg Popovich has made, somewhat confusing.
0: Okay. Well, in the spirit of blowing through a, another one really quickly, I'll just say the Atlanta Hawks, it's not confusing to me because they're great offensively and terrible defensively. And that's been the MO for the Hawks the last few years. Yeah. That in itself isn't confusing or surprising. But the way they're playing defense as like the most aggressive pick and roll defense in the league. It doesn't make a ton of sense to me, especially if you think about Quinn Snyder's history, basically running like the you know conservative deep drop scheme he ran in Utah for almost a decade and then coming in to a group that was sort of built to play the same way. And the result is that they are giving up a boatload of shots at the rim and a boatload of threes. And I just, especially now with Jalen Johnson injured, the one guy who it seemed like could really provides some secondary rim protection on the backside of like Capella and a coming up to the level repeatedly with him out. And they're still playing like this aggressive style. I I just, I I don't know, man, that doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Like their defense was bad last year, but the one thing they did really well was limit opposing three point attempts. And they were able to do that because They were having their bigs play drop. They were keeping their help defenders home for the most part and just doing like a lot of late switching where they trusted those bigs to like contain and switch on to ball handlers late. And then the on-ball defender would veer back to take away like pick and pops and like the weak side defenders could stay home a little bit. So now like they're giving up a ton of shots at the rim just as they did last year. But now they're also giving up a ton, a ton of threes. And uh, it just hasn't, hasn't looked great for them on the defensive side of the ball. So that's, uh yeah, that's all I got on the confusing teams front. Cash, you've cleared your
1: conscience. Yeah. Is that sufficient? I, I, I absolutely have.
0: <laughs> okay. I guess we, we did skip out on a fan shout out last week. So even though we are going very long here, we should try to get to one today.
1: You have one for us, Cash? I do, actually. Yeah. Uh, Gavin Verge. Out in Budely, Ontario, Gavin emailed me a few weeks ago. First of all, I just want to say that Gavin uh, included a lot of very kind words about us uh, and about enjoying our work, uh, which honestly, we don't have time to read all of them. So we really appreciate it, Gavin. But uh, but what I will say is yeah, that Gavin said um, he assumes he's one of maybe a maximum of 10 basketball fans in his hometown, and the only true diehard Hoops head. I actually looked at it. So, Beauty Ontario, according to Google, population 650. So, I actually don't discount uh, that Gavin might be one of only 10 Hoops fans and the only true diehard. Um, anyway, he actually said that uh, he originally saw Wolf 1 and I on the Raptor show with Will Lou and loved our analysis. So, then he naturally bought into Pound the Rock and he hasn't missed a drop since as uh, he enjoys that we provide some of the most thorough analysis out there in conjunction with great personalities and some stories sprinkled in. Uh, also said his absolute favorite part of the show is some of the surprising ideas and takes we have. Uh, he says, I've dropped some mind-bending ideas on him before. Also says he loves my, quote-unquote, anarchist opinions. I don't know I'm starting to feel about this uh, reach out, Gavin. No, I, 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 <laughs> I very much appreciate it. Like I said, appreciate the kind words in general. I had already emailed Gavin back. We have a little, nice little back and forth going, but... Even though this show went really long, I did want to make sure I got Gavin a well-deserved shout-out. Also because, as Wolfon knows, I will be gone for the next week and a little bit, going to a friend's destination wedding. So I'll be away next week. Wolfon, I'm pretty sure, has a host, co-host. Sorry, Wolfon, I'm pretty sure, has a guest lined up for y'all next week. And I'll be back in a couple weeks and didn't want Gavin to have to wait that long for his fan shout-out. So Gavin, there you go. Well-deserved. Thanks for the support, man. Thank you so much, Gavin. Cash, you got to forward me that
0: email, man. I I I wasn't CC'd. I will. But thank you to Gavin. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning in for this extra long episode. I don't know. I should stop calling them that. This is just standard runtime at this point. But uh, thank you all for listening. Bid Cash a fine vacation. And we'll hear from him in a couple of weeks. But for the time being, hope you all are doing well and have a great weekend. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolf on Pound the Rock.